what stops the depression is making those actions in the yeah it's like you have to start to feel better right so you could say oh if i wasn't so depressed i would go to the gym and work mm -hmm. but it's actually the action of going to the gym even when you are you are depressed that allows for you to begin the healing process that it's the action that creates that valuable thing that mm -hmm. meaning yeah so that meaning creation and the pursuit of something that or the assertion of value the pursuit of something meaningful worthwhile worth having worth yeah. valuing creates that meaning and that meaning then again in this case your depression Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. I'm your host, Eric Wenzel, and I was talking really fast there, so we're going to slow it down. Today's episode, we are joined once again by Joe Joukowsky, none other than, and, and this episode is very much a continuation from episode 53, where we're diving a little bit more deep into the psychological frameworks of meaning, or philosophies for that matter, and Joe gets a little bit more in-depth with his thesis research that he's outlining right now before we get into that though we talk about a little bit of writing processes and a couple of writings that we've done on here on the website so there'll be links in the show notes for you guys to go check those out or you just go hit that blog thing at the top there and you can go read them um it's just part of our exploration is just get content out in different forms audio writing and video eventually other than that, we really dive into this meaning stuff that Joe's been really putting on a lot. And it's really a core philosophy of both of ours to kind of figure out meaning in general and what does that do for our life and why does it give us value. And so if you're really interested in this topic like we are, you'll get a lot out of this. And there's a lot to go and search on your own. And in general, is just figuring yourself out allows you to kind of put the pieces of your life in the places that they need to go or make change, meaningful changes for your life. And so with that, everyone, please enjoy this conversation with Joe Joukowsky. And we're back with the podcast. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> and there was much rejoicing. Hey, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> it's solid. Uh, cool. yeah. I was watching um, <clears throat> a interview on... Um, Oh, I don't remember what the YouTube channel name is, but they were interviewing John Cleese. Mm -hmm. I was like, who is the guy, one of the Cree. members of Monty Python. Yeah. So that's a very synchronized little callback right there. Man, we, it's like, we know these things. It's so weird. Like whenever we're like, you go back to school or whatever, it's like, we're always tangentially exploring the same thing somehow. It's very weird. Like, I don't know, man. <laughs> We're just on the same wavelength, I guess. The yeah. whole thing. This is People this. just I almost wonder if we don't feed off each other, right? Like that it, since we're in some kind of constant dialogue that it's like I bring up something about what I'm doing and then somebody goes, Oh, that's kinda interesting. And oh yeah, for sure. Being on your own about it, and then you have your own idea. Well, I mean it's like really it's really fitting in the sense that, you know, I, I Jordan came out with his like what is success article. And then like, I started thinking about it. I'm like, ooh, that's a good one. Like, we could talk about that one. And then I started thinking even more. And then I, that's where my, my article that I don't think it'll be out by the time this goes live. But that's where the it'll, it'll be titled Feeding Fires or Feeding Your Fire, something along those lines. You know, and, you, you, and then we send it off to you guys and you guys do your editing things and stuff like that. It's like, 
now we're like creating this layers of dialogue in some ways. It's really cool. It's neat. I like that there's a little bit of exploration mm-hmm. going on. And then you're writing your, your whole article around uh, Jordan's thing and it just kind of fits. It becomes a conversation. And yeah, and I like, like that people could hop on and they can add something to yeah. themselves too, you know? Yeah. And that's, like it, only, it leaves the door open. It like leaves it, it like continues the dialogue. And then like I've shared it to people who know of the podcast now. And it's like, Oh, Hey, like, you know, if like, you know something or someone who has like similar viewpoints of you, it's like, Oh yeah, they're going to get something out of this too. And so I've been doing that. Like I share it to, to anyone who I think can use it. Cause it's like part of it for me is we're, we're all like part of this little nexus of stuff where like all these people are working on their own little thing, but every little bit that we can share to each other is like kindling for the flame for each individual person. And so when there's an, right. like a, there's an article where it's subjective like that with like what is success and not using the gen- generic measures of it, you can kind of, whoever reads it can pick and choose how to apply that for themselves. Yeah. And that's what I really enjoy about it. it. <laughs> it's cool too. Cause I mean, part of what I like about that definition of success being something like accomplishment of goals along the way to some broader broader desire or, or it's even, it's even almost like the little successes is the point and what society sees as the major success yeah. is just a byproduct of the little accomplishments that one does along the way. Yeah. I like that. I think that that's, I think that's true. Like a lot of the successes that I've had have been the result of kind of just doing things for their own sake or because I wanted to do it. And then they had, they had utility when they needed to, yeah. when it mattered, I had that tool at my disposal. Yeah. Like for example, I liked, I was, I've been writing for a long time, just personally. And when we had BroPod, we still had that website. I was writing a lot for it. Mm-hmm. And I still have a lot of writings that are just incomplete or, or they became less interesting, but I just kept writing. And when I was applying for colleges, it was interesting because I had already kind of built or created a voice, like a writing voice. Mm-hmm. So I think that my admission letters, that uh, the essays that I wrote, were probably part of what really swayed the decision for me for Michigan, and that's how I got into Michigan, right? Yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, so I, I, I think that that those little successes the success of just doing writing and just figuring out my own thoughts on things and having kind of fun with it really led to kind of a broader or broader, but a success of greater magnitude later down the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say like, and that's cool. Learning how to articulate something in words is really interesting because, and this is just from my own exploration of it so far is like, Initial writings were more of just kind of using other people's words, like writing book review or something like that, or taking something that was, I just wanted to highlight another piece of content rather than making my own initial, like my own type of thing, if that makes sense. Right. Um, because I, w- I didn't feel comfortable in being able to be like, yeah, I know what the heck I'm talking about here or articulating it effectively. And now it's like, it feels like it gets, it's gotten to the point where it's more of like a creative exploration of it. Um, 
where it's like I can figure out my own voice and there's there's a second article that's been written, but it was more of like it's more of like a strain of consciousness where the the article is at the reader, like the, it uses you. So it's like something about the universe or the experience of consciousness, I guess you'd kind of call it. And so it's like really different than anything I've ever written before, but I kind of like just sat down at the computer and it was just like, boom, there it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then I like sent it to Jordan and he like gave a whole bunch of feedback. He's like, rewrite it and like add bad more to the intro. Like there's something missing here. Like you can make it better. And then I added more to the intro and then he added more stuff. And so it's like kind of done ish right now. And I kind of letting it marinate for a little bit to see if there's, it's really done. And that's kind of half the fun now is like letting the, like having the initial spark and then letting things marinate for about a week. <laughs> yeah. And then seeing like coming back to it after you've kind of like let it do its thing and then be like, okay, can I be impartial to it? Cause like when you write it and then edit it too closely, you're kind of, I don't yeah. know. It feels like you second guess more. You're married to it. Yeah. You're like, you're, you're, you have this, this attachment to it, the, the sentimentality to the things that you've written and the work that you put in. Yeah. Sometimes you just need to take a step back and, give it some time to gestate and then you go back and with fresh eyes, look over the thing again and you yeah. find that you miss spots that you're too blind to see or whatever. Absolutely. And I think I find the, is this the same Is this article that you're writing. Is this, this is a different one. From it's the one a different one, but I can add you to that one if you want to read it, because I think you would probably, you'd actually probably enjoy it because it's on the lines of like, uh, okay. just for teaser for all you peoples out there, because writing has been one of the things that I really want to do more of. Um, and for myself as like the selfish goal is, um, you'll probably find this funny, Joe, but I kind of like thought of the idea of, it's like, what are the baseline assumption of what you assume a quality, the qualities of an engineer do not articulate well. So interpersonal skills, um, verbal, like either by verbal communication via like standard writing, like creative writing, and then. Because, like, we're good at communicating numbers and schematics and analytical details. Right. And then just for my own sake is I was never a strong writer in in general. So it's kind of brute forcing it for myself to be able to just put myself in a situation that I have to try to be better. Yeah. That's cool, man. Filling, I mean... Filling in the gaps, you know, being as much of a jack-of-all-trades yeah. as possible. <laughs> Basically. Mm-hmm. And I, I do, really? I, I think part of it is I do feel like I'm getting better too. At writing mm-hmm. specifically. I think so. I'm trying to think of what I remember about some of your other writings compared to the one that I looked at. There's probably less grammar mistakes. You definitely bring that up. The, thing, the, the things that I would notice are just like the, are the things I pointed out already on the yeah. article, so I guess we don't really have to get into it. But no, yeah, we don't need to do technical, but it's more of just kind of I don't know, trying to just do it because I think it's one of the skills that I think is overlooked in today's world when we're always de- like we're also used to using short form and text messages and Twitter, where everything is like short and like like super simple or parsed down, so that when you need to articulate complex ideas effectively or concisely even, you lack the the verbal gymnastics to accomplish it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and writing definitely helps with that. It's, mm-hmm. 
it's it's not taught. Really. No. I mean, you do English class and you learn how to write essays. You don't really understand what writing is, how to really write. For me, it just came down to I realized that writing wasn't trying to writing wasn't trying to put onto paper what your professor wants to hear. Yeah, and that's not the point. The point is to explore. It's an exploration of truth, really. And all mm-hmm. I'm trying to do whenever I try to write is try to articulate to the best of my ability how I see things, mm-hmm. what's sticking out, what's standing out to me, and what are the connections that seem oh. most salient yeah. that need be expressed in order to convey the mm-hmm. point. And yeah. that's where it's great for me. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I, I resonate with that because like, my original writings were a lot of about like my own exploration. It's like, ooh, that's something that, that I could write about because I'm interested in it and I think it's worth remembering or highlighting at the very least. Mm-hmm. And now it's kind of turning into this thing that's where it's like someone will say something to me like you or Jordan or Mike or whoever and I'll like run into this thing um, and I'm like, damn, like I wish I would remember this to tell them kind of thing. Or like, oh, I could use this to kind of explain some a point that I couldn't explain in conversation well enough in the moment. Um, okay. and, and then so I'll remember something and I'm like, oh, cool, there's like a thing. Or someone will ask me a whole bunch of questions. Like I have, a, actually I have a piece that is about computer building. So I built my computer twice. And so when people find that out, they wind up asking me all these questions. And I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ. Like if I just wrote something about this, I can just send them that. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then it's there and exists forever. And then <laughs> you can just point that shit out every time yeah. it comes up, and you don't have to. And that's partially lazy, but partially efficient at the same time. <laughs> I've actually—it's funny because I—I I definitely get that, but I like to work in the opposite direction. Really, like, I don't like to write so that I can point that to so that I, when somebody asks me, I can point them to it. I like to write so that when somebody asks me. One, I know my thoughts on the subject. And mm, two, I'm way okay. more articulate when I get to speak. Mm. Like I, if I've written about something, like seriously written about it, yeah. Then when it comes up in that conversation, it's like I've already got it. I've yeah. got the answer. I figured it. I, I do notice my that. own thoughts. On mm. I do notice that though, where it's like that you're more articulate, like figuring out the ums and the ahs. Like when, when in conversation, you have to think through. Like you can feel the mental knot, and then when you have thought through that thing that you're trying to explain, you can then talk about it without any of that. Like when you hear any, anybody who's, who's really clear on what they say, the reason they don't stutter or have lack of words or pause too much is because they've spent enough time thinking about it, I think. And some of that is writing. Yeah. They don't need that moment to catch their breath or to find the thought. Yeah. They've really good, really good speakers and writers will know where they're going right when they begin. Mm-hmm. So if I'm speaking and I have really thought through an issue, I can usually tell where I need to take this person, Yeah, what the road is, and where along it we need to go, where the bobs and turns are. Oh, that's kind of cool. That's really cool. So that, so that I can convey the whole thing in one long breath instead of stopping every two seconds and trying to figure out where I'm going or what needs to be said mm-hmm. or or how to course correct because I've forgotten something or something doesn't quite make sense. I like that. So, have it, so when I've already written it, 
then when I speak it, I already know where we're going. Mm-hmm. And that helps a ton. That's interesting. I like so that a lot. Beer, you know? Yeah. Double beers again, that helps too. <laughs> <laughs> As always, you know, that, that's just lubricant for you. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I really agree with that. And, and some of the people that I look up to, like, specifically is Michael Gervais. He's a sports performance psychologist for Compete to Create, and he does his own practice. And then the other one is Dr. Peter Atia. And when you listen to the, how they talk or phrase certain things, for me at least, is I kind of like analyze how they their sentence structure plays out to see, because it's very deliberate, especially if you're a psychologist or a doctor, right? Like they have very de- mm-hmm. deliberate speech patterns. And there's certain things that, you know, when it's like, when you feel like that emotional impact of words or a sentence, I, I try to pay attention to those. Like when it makes you like sit up in your chair or like something like that, you know what I mean? I try to yeah. li- figure out like what those sentences are and like why do, it's like why do I remember that sentence? You know, there's something about that sentence that hits you the right way, you know, it makes you stop and think about it, or or just it has that right chord. Um, yeah. So 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 here's a question: mm-hmm. have, have you find a a pattern in the in the sentences that stick out to you? Um, like, is there something common amongst them all? What is that thing that is making it? You go, oh, shit. It's like a simple structure. So it's like one for Peter Tia, and I, I've kind of adopted this for myself. It's like his sentence is, access to information is all people need to make meaningful changes in their in their lives. You know, and that sentence is super simple. But for me, it makes me go like five levels deeper because thinking about, you know, what does that mean? You know, it, so that saying is like anyone who can, if you have access to the Internet, you can then find information that can make the quality of your life better. Like that's his core mantra basically is quality of life. And so when, when you say access to information, so what he's saying, he's making himself a nexus for information that's high quality. And then by having access to said information, you can have a allow yourself to have a higher quality life if you pay attention. So he's just like a shepherd. (laughs) Yeah. So he's, he's trying to be concise in his information. Yeah. And I, and, and that, that's something I really strive to do now. Um, when I look at my own writing or one of the things that you actually helped me do was when you, when I wrote, um, I forget which piece it was. It was one in like in December maybe. And you had mentioned to like have an outline of what, like what you want to do and where, where you want to go, you know, like what paragraph goes where kind of. So now what I'll do is if I have like a stroke of, inspiration and I just start writing and I have a couple paragraphs, I like to stop and look, look at it and just be like, what are the themes of these like little chunks of words on the screen? And can there be points of where certain things need to be moved up or down in its, you know, logical framework here that I've just kind of put it in. And that, and that's kind of helped a lot because I've been able to see where my logical progression is going. And then I'm like, Oh, okay, that needs to actually move here. And this needs to move there. And then from there, it's like stitching it all together again. Mm-hmm. you know and it's, yeah i mean so do you so you write in do you write an outline do you like to do i, I usually don't do an outline but what'll happen is i spend a lot of time just thinking about an idea and if it sticks around okay. a long time it's like i'm writing it in my head like I'll, yeah. I, I can picture like paragraphs and chunks like how do i want to say this or what is this word that i want to say or is there a quote um a lot of times there's a title that kind of pops up right away and if i can have a title then it's like okay i know how to like you know, fill that in. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, I can, I resonate with that. So I'll, my process has shifted over the years. Usually it has to be in, right. It's an idea first. You right. 
something comes to your mind or something is bothering you, mm-hmm. that'll happen a lot. And a lot of the writing that I write that I don't actually put anywhere, finish usually, mm-hmm. is just like something's bothering me and I don't really know what I think about it. So I'll just go after it and write as much as I can. And then when I reach the end of it, I'm like, oh, okay, that's it. That's interesting. Then I'll be done with it because mm-hmm. it's not really meant for other people. Maybe it could be. I don't know. Yeah. Or I'll write. A, or I'll have an idea that I think is really interesting, and I'll start writing, and mm-hmm. then I'll get a page or two in, and then I'll go. Uh, you know what? I think that's exhausted already. It's just. Really yeah, I've done that before. Where I kind of like. It was. I get like halfway through, and I'm like, I don't know where to go with this. Like, I don't want to just yeah. keep going on something that's just half baked. <laughs> right. Then it's like you're. Then it's like you have a page limit, you know, for a paper at school. Mm-hmm. And you are reaching for that final page. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's that's one it's of the just, weird things that I've noticed is like the the. So this is kind of like what's self doubting, but also it's like how do you know when something is done? Yeah. And I don't like it. It doesn't have like there doesn't have to be a like a like a length or anything. Um, yeah. I think most of my pages or most of the things I've really written are about a page long if you put it on Word or something, not double spaced. Mm-hmm. And I personally think that like it's whatever. Like I don't care about page length. I actually kind of like lean on the yeah. the shorter end because it's like yeah. I, don't, I don't think I need to take up that much real estate right now. It's almost like a resume because right. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just you know I'm not dealing with something profound. You're just trying to get the point across. Yeah, I'm just trying to just, like get food for thought more than anything else. Um, and if it generates a conversation, awesome. And then uh, to- go ahead. To, uh, I mean, I think I can tie a few things together here. Mm-hmm. One is you talked about when you know it's done mm-hmm. and self-doubt. And then we were still talking about the steps that one takes in order to get to, or at least that I take when I'm writing. Mm-hmm. And what I found is that when I know, when I've thought about it enough and I'm ready to write, so I've made an outline usually at this point, mm-hmm. and I've probably either done the outline or redone the outline, yeah. Or really toiled at this thing. When I'm writing the academic papers in particular or school, if I can write, if I can get my outline whole, which is my measure of completeness, it feels whole. Ooh. It's a strange phenomenon. It's not like. Like, does it feel like it can, you like, could write itself basically? Like, all you have to do is hand that outline over and you're basically like, oh, yeah, like I know exactly what I need to say at each one of these. Exactly. Uh, once it feels, once the outline feels whole and the idea itself is complete in my mind, mm-hmm. then I can I can sit down. I can write it in a day, no problem. Wow. I'll spend way more time on the outline than I ever do writing the actual paper. Mm. Because once I've got the idea, then I just have to put it on the page. It's, yeah. But I have the whole thing, so it's simple. Hmm. So the three the things there, that wholeness, yeah, knowing having that feeling of completeness really limits self-doubt because I'm not like, oh, is this making sense? Or, uh, mm-hmm. Because I won't even start it if I'm at that point. Yeah. Like, I'll, I'll still be on the outline just trying to make it feel complete, make it feel whole in my mind. And it, that really, when I reach that point, the self-doubt is gone. And there's literally, I can't think of a single time that I've followed that rule where I've looked for wholeness in the outline and then written the paper yeah. that I haven't gotten an A on that paper. Here. Wow. That's awesome. That's a really interesting way of talking about it too, because I think most of us were, ri- were raised at least to think of writing as, you know, 
you have an intro, three body paragraphs, and a conclusion. And I don't think I've really followed that in any of my own personal writings, like thinking about it in that terms. Right. It's like more of like, what are each of these little paragraphs in idea form trying to articulate in like encapsulating this whole idea that I'm getting across? Like, you know, it's like you have your big idea that you're trying to get across. And then what are the supporting nuggets, I guess you'd call it, that you're trying to, you know, double click on <laughs> in your writing yeah. that then drive that I point still, home. I, It's funny because I still see... I still do the intro bodies. Mm -hmm. There are more than three now. Right, yeah. Uh, body paragraphs. That's, the, that's just the overly religion. simplistic view. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's like the, that's the standard high school format, right? The, the baseline, right? The baseline assumption. Yeah. And I still do that, mm -hmm. but it's almost... I'm not really doing it for the sake of doing it. Yeah. Like, like, you, like you're not forcing it to be that structure, right? Right, I, it emerges. I'm like, where does the story begin? Mm -hmm. Where do I need to start this thing for people to understand what actually Ooh, I, matters? I like that that language that you just used right there. That's important. The where is it the matters. story here? Like that's important. Yeah, because that's what I'm. That's what you're doing when you're writing. Even if it's academic, you're writing. You're still writing a story. Yeah, I think you're that's just why taking them through a thought process. It's a journey oh, through thought instead of a journey. <laughs> For characters, dude, I love this because, like, I I'm obsessed with journalists right now. Like, what you're saying is very journalistic of you. Well, what's interesting too is this just popped into mind is that even the greatest stories are both a journey of character and of ideas and of thought. Mm -hmm. Where, like, in Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, these different characters have different thoughts and it's an exploration of thought through the characters that's being presented to you throughout the whole story. Yeah. And that in the real thoughtful and the real, how would you say monumental works of literature, the characters aren't just characters. They really are an exploration of ideas. So yeah. that academic writing for me is a form of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And it seems that I'm not the only one that thinks that. No. <laughs> because other people do it. I, I think for me, it's always, I've had like this, a lot of my favorite books, and I think we've talked about this before, but like Michael Pollan's books in particular yeah. are some of the best writing in a sense that drive an idea and also capture story. Um, mm -hmm. And I, and I, like, it really resonates with me, like, being able to, there's like something you know, lightning in a bottle or something when it comes down to being able to capture a story, but then also articulate the, like a core theme about that story, because what, that's what a journalist is doing, right? They're having experiences or sharing the experiences of someone else, but then transporting it through the vehicle of a book or an article. Right. So it's like this, you know, how do you wrap that all together basically? And, and I find that yeah. completely fascinating. <laughs> It's cool, and that's what I'm, when I do research, that's what I'm looking for, mm -hmm. is like, what's the pattern, what's the through line, yeah. you know, what's the story that I'm looking for? So like, with my thesis proposal that I'm doing, I'm doing a lot of research into meaning, yeah. and how meaning functions in psychology, and it's interesting, because it's like, the story of it, and how people use meaning, kind of, 
emerges in the facts. Like the facts are there, and then you kind of watch how one thing leads to the other, mm-hmm. leads to the other, leads to the other. And it's like, oh, okay, see what's going on here. I see the story. I see the overarching, yeah. overarching pattern that I need to lay out for this proposal. Of course, ironically, <laughs> I, wrote, I write my first draft for my proposal, and it's like 13 pages long. Oh, my and Lord. I send it to my advisor, yeah. <laughs> I send it to my advisor, and she's like, oh, this is supposed to be like four pages tops. You really need to cut this down. <laughs> I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> You're like, oopsies. <laughs> Dude, it was so I really, I cut out almost everything. Yeah, almost it sounds about everything. right. I was like, oh damn it! <laughs> I mean, I kept I kept a copy of the original, right? Just so you could so have thesis it. The thesis that I have to write will have to be like 30, 40 pages. Okay, so you're looking at like a decently long. Yeah, but I won't have to have that. Paper. I won't be writing that for until like next January or right. February, probably. That's interesting. So this is actually a good point to kind of bring up the self doubt part of it again, because when you're creating a thesis, and I haven't done a thesis myself, but I can kind of think about it in a sense of like. You're, you're given a broad idea, whatever that is that you choose, and you have to figure out where you want to start with it, right? And you have no idea where you yeah. it's going to lead you, right? Because that's the whole point. Um, right. How did you figure that's out where you wanted to go? If the, like, Yeah, either, either where the idea came from or where, where to even start after you had your idea. Oh, for my thesis? Yeah, like just using that as an example since it's so front of yeah. brain. That was, hmm, that's a good question. So part of it is constrained by B's ability because a thesis is you doing your own research. Mm -hmm. So I have to actually do something. I'm not just reading other people's research and synthesizing it. I actually have to do research myself. So it was like, oh, shit, okay, so I need to explore something that is interesting to me, but I can actually do it. I'm a student, right? I'm not going to have some longitudinal study that lasts for 40 years where I track their happiness. You know what right. I mean? Like, that's not going to fucking happen. So <laughs> it's just totally outside the scope. So I need to find something more straightforward, more simple. And you go over with your advisor what that is. Like, you have, I had a couple ideas, and I was kind of throwing them out there. And we ended up getting into a conversation that expanded because I knew about um, James Pennebaker's work. He's out of UT Austin. He's a professor there. And he's mm-hmm. used... Um, language uh, analysis tools. So people do expressive writing and then they analyze what kind of language they use to look at a handful of different things. One was um, they looked at the difference between poets who killed themselves and didn't kill themselves. And what they find Hmm. is that those that killed themselves used self-referential language way more. I was used way more. They were inward focused. They were self-focused. Yeah. So that's interesting. So depression is something like a, a... Depression leading to suicide is something like a um, exaggeration of focus on one's own problems. Yeah, and themselves. Interesting. Then they did um, work on uh, undergraduate, I think freshmen, uh, couples, like new couples, mm-hmm. and they looked at their text messages back and forth, and they found that. They could predict which couples would last after six months. Oh, I've heard about this research. I think Jordan Peterson may have mentioned some of this at some point. Yeah, he had a he had a interview with Ben Baker. That's how I he found did. Out about okay, him. then I think I might have listened and to that talk, one. Then. Yeah, and they found that they could predict which couples would last based on 
how similar their language became. So they start to match each other and mirror each other's way of speaking. They, that's literally them getting on the same wavelength. Like they're coming together. They're harmonizing. Ooh. And that's how you know that they're going to last. Which is fascinating. And now I'm not curious about that. If, you, if you were to attach like, you know, brain, like the measuring brain waves and see if the brains would become synchronized. Like musicians I, when I they admit, play instruments would, together. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if It'd be really hard to measure, actually, because you, that'd be really tough. But maybe. Theoretically, you could imagine that they would be matching. Yeah. Basically. Because if you're happy, I'm going to be happy, right? Yeah, you're synchronizing. If you're that kind of close. Right, exactly. So anyway. Sorry. Um, so that came up in conversation with the thesis. And I was like, that was really cool work. And she, and she had done some work like that hmm. um, using what's called generic U. So... Generic you is, I'm not saying you wins all. Yeah. I'm saying uh, when you go to the store, you buy groceries. Okay. It's general you. It's it's some, it's everybody. You it's, know, a it's a passerby. It's somebody. Right, it's a category. It's just people. Mm-hmm. It's just all these people, you people, whatever. Mm-hmm. And she used, they used that and basically um, established through a very, very um, rigorous study that ended up getting published in science, which is impressive, um, that showed that what people are doing with generic, if you, if you tell people who have negative life experience, past life experiences, like deep emotional, negative, mm-hmm. they don't like this, trauma even, to expressly write about that and then ask them to think about what meaning they can make out of it, out of the event, they start mm-hmm. using generic you more. So what they're doing is they're self-distancing. <laughs> wow. So, right, so... What That's crazy. They, look, they step outside themselves of that moment, look at it as if it's third person. They've psychologically distanced themselves. Now they use generic you instead of referring to themselves specifically. And they use that as a means of, of processing and creating... It's a byproduct of having trying to create meaning out of that experience. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing, too, is so ask them to make meaning. So they're trying to make meaning, which is how I got into the meaning research. And meaning making increases the use of generic you. Actually, it increases psychological distancing. It's an attempt to psychologically distance that we can measure using generic you. And then that psychological distancing predicts emotional regulation. So what it might be, is that, or it looks like, is that people who are trying to make meaning and psychologically distance, as a result, end up being more capable of regulating their emotions when thinking about that negative experience. They come, they calm down about the whole thing. That's crazy. So we can basically use that as a measure, theoretically, to see how healthy they're becoming mm-hmm. when they're about a specific event. And that's how I, so that's how I fell into the meaning letter. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, so the story, the story starts before this. What is the meaning here? Like, what is meaning serving? What function yeah. does meaning serve? Like, why make meaning in the first place? You know, because mm-hmm. it's not self-evident that that's worth doing. And it's interesting that in an attempt to make meaning, they become more ultimately emotionally regulated. So that's how I started my, my thesis, is that now my thesis begins 
begin it it begins with a bunch of uh, what theoreticians I think is the proper way to say that. I always butcher that one. Yeah, uh, philosophers I know what and yeah. great thinkers. Um, because I've read a lot already. I've just coincidentally and probably not totally coincidentally. I imagine that mine having my having read that led me to draw that connection in this research. But anyway, mm-hmm. I mean, I've read Tolstoy's A Confession. He talks about it. I'm reading Camus right now. I'm reading, I've read Ernest Becker's uh, The Birth and Death of Meaning, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Mm-hmm. I've read Jung. I've read all these people that talk about this. And now I get to synthesize them and begin there because it starts with these thoughts about it. Like Ernest Becker nailed it on the head. He, he thought that meaning acted as an anxiety buffer, that it was a means of protecting yourself against all the potential dangers in the world. It's a way of yeah. understanding the world so that you could navigate it despite all the things that could potentially fuck you up, basically. Right. And ultimately, in his mind, was death, that he was a terror management, ter- terror management theorist. So he thought that, that ultimately religious things were just there to be a buffer against the anxiety of death. But he was right, and I think he was actually wrong about the ultimate version of But anyway. Yeah. Um, he was definitely right about anxiety being, or meaning systems being a buffer. Because what I'm finding now is that what's called global meaning in the research, it's kind of like your straightforward, your, your beliefs, your goals, mm-hmm. that if you have high meaning in life, it will stave off distress following Natural disasters, for example. There's two studies I read. One that was hmm. um, Katrina and one that was um, um, uh, flooding in Baton Rouge. Wow. And the people that had greater spiritual meaning in life were less distressed about resources being lost in those natural Whoa. disasters. I wonder so if, if um, I- Sebastian Younger's book would help, not help, but would be uh, another place. To kind of pull from. Look. Yeah. It might be that. I mean, we're looking into veterans. So we're going to do the. Yeah, that, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, I brought, I brought that up to her too. I brought up that book. Actually, I brought up. I think I mentioned the book, but it's, I, I haven't read it. Um, it's really short. It's like 120 but, pages. So it's like. Right. It's doable. I've it's seen Restrepo, the movie. Okay. So yeah. you So you do know enough about it then. Yeah. Or in theory. Yeah. It's probably worth watching again, but yeah, I can imagine that that ties in because that's kind of a veteran-specific thing. But we're going to try to do the generic U um, tests that's with the veterans cool. and see how they if there's any difference in in mm-hmm. its use. Now, now you can see over what I've just laid out, both the beginning and the very end of what we're trying to accomplish. Right? Yeah. There's here's where I'm going to start with the the philosophers that have considered this. Yeah. The broadest possible interpretation of these things, not yep. the bare bones facts, and then I want to boil it all the way down to a very specific population of veterans. A sample mm-hmm. how it works, how this exact mechanism works in that very that's very broad cool. population. Yeah, so it's like so to, for it's me, cool. it, it seems like the, the the philosopher or the philosophizing, if you want to use the verb of it, is like the 
the baseline theory about these psychological frameworks, if you want to call it that. Um, and then you're trying to figure out where, what is the through line of all of those different theories out there that seem to be the most plausible or fit this subsection of, in your case, veterans. Um, and then you can take from the veteran group and see how that applies then more broadly if you want to keep yeah. going with it. Yeah, and it's it's cool because it's almost like I get to create a it's almost like an evolutionary tree of mm-hmm. thought of on meaning That's and what cool. it is there for and mm-hmm. it'll go from like I'm not exactly sure which philosopher I'll start with. Mm-hmm. It's a little hard to say. It might just end up being chronological with like Tolstoy starting first. Like starting with the oldest then, ones that have and then see where it takes you from there. Yeah. I mean, it'll probably end with Viktor Frankl because he talks, he actually created this thing called logotherapy. Yeah. Um, which was using meaning making as a means of therapy. Right. And what's interesting about that is that they didn't have this research that I'm going off of when oh, Frankl really? was doing this. Right. Cause that's this very is, cool. Jesus. The fifties maybe. Yeah. That sounds about right. And he just got it. He knew it. He was like, I don't have the research on this, but I know <laughs> when I do this therapy, yeah. like I'm seeing results, and he's seeing results for good reason. Now we're finding out that empirically we can prove that he was right, Damn. that that meaning-making helps. I mean, that's what, from all that I can tell, just obviously end of one type thing. I, I would absolutely agree. And it's not to say that, you know, where we're saying this, you know, capital M meaning um, term, it's kind of, eh, I don't know if it's slippery, so to speak, but it's not easy. It's definitely not an easy thing to, for one, for yourself to go into it, because it's not going to be comfortable at all times to kind of go down this path of having a meaningful existence. Yeah, I mean, well, you got to, it's no surprise to me that people feel disillusioned with our with our state right now mm-hmm. with the modern world and place in it like it's not obvious that it's providing any good avenues for meaning yeah Becker said same book that he talked about anxiety being a buffer or um meaning being a buffer against anxiety he said um in like quote mankind's common instinct has always held the world to be essentially a theater for a theater for what? And you cut out heroism, heroism. Hmm. Yeah. And I don't see any obvious places where people, young people exploring what they want to do are finding avenues in which to be heroic. Yeah. Instead it's you work a nine to five job and nobody's fucking fooling anybody. Yeah. And you're a cog in the machine behind a counter. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing heroic about that, and that heroism, that action that you take, do you think really helps create meaning? And in fact, that's what Sartre said. Hmm. Sartre, the Jean-Paul Sartre, another philosopher, an existentialist, talked about how um, meaning is the is the. He talked about how do you say that? It's something like the byproduct of value, and value is produced. I've, it's something, meaning is, let me see if I can start this over, be more clear. Mm-hmm. 
meaning is the byproduct of value, and value is the consequence of acting on a decision, on a choice. So you value something. So you do something. I'm talking to you right now. Yeah. Whoever's listening is listening to a podcast right now because they value listening to that podcast more than doing something else. Yeah. So in the action that they are taking, they are producing a value. They're producing, they're asserting what they value. Hmm. And if you pursue value, right, if you are making a decision that is valuable, that creates then a sensation of meaning. That in that meaning is created. Yeah. One thing that kind of is coming to mind for me here right now is this like meaning is a is the vehicle for hope. Like when you have a meaning, you generate hope as you know, you kind of see a reason to wake up in the morning, right? Like or or at the very least when something shitty happens, back to the self-doubt, you can kind of bounce back off of him like it's okay it's all gonna fucking work out you know because it's like because i'm still on the path <laughs> kind of thing okay I could, yeah i think you're i think you're hitting on something implicit in action the hope is implicit in action right the production of that value because why would i do something if i didn't have hope that it the outcome that i wanted happened right because right? if it's so pointless if, anyways then why the fuck would i even bother right so why bother at all so i have some action that I'm taking will produce something valuable and there's that meaning that's entangled in that and mm-hmm. that there's a purpose in pursuing that value that there's a purpose in my action and that action is to both assert that value what I value but yeah. also to create the outcome that I'm moving towards and that's meaningful dude Yes, <laughs> I completely resonate with this. Like, like I'm having so many flashbacks about all the like really similar ideas that I've been floating around in my brain that have no basis in any of this psychology and philosophy, but just kind of like my own resonations of this. And it's like, yeah, yeah, like fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And it's no surprise to me either that I mean this something similar to this, an analog, but maybe not quite so analog. I'm sure these things are actually commingled at the bottom, but mm-hmm. is that when you're doing behavior therapy for somebody, when you're go or even cognitive behavioral therapy, yeah, whatever, I say CBT. therapy for this person, you don't, you don't tell this person what that when they feel less depressed, then they'll start doing what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Rather, it's the other way around. What stops the depression is making those actions in the yeah, it's like you have to start to feel better. Right. So you could say, oh, if I wasn't so depressed, I would go to the gym and work. Mm-hmm. But it's actually the action of going to the gym, even when you are, you are depressed, that allows for you to begin the healing process. That it's the action that creates that valuable thing, that mm-hmm. meaning. Yeah. So that meaning creation and the pursuit of something that, or the assertion of value the pursuit of something meaningful, worthwhile, worth having, worth yeah. valuing. My clever way of thinking about this creates that meaning, and that meaning then again 
in this case, your depression yeah. and anxiety. I was thinking about this a lot lately because I've, I've run into people and, you know, a lot of, you'll probably meet people too where, or I didn't want to like say, oh, I wish I could do that. Or I wish I could, you know, run a mile or lift X amount of weight or whatever it is they wish they want to be. And yeah. when I think about that or hear that, I'm like, that's the wrong way to think about it because you're psychologically closing yourself off of, by saying I wish means you don't think you can be that. And so if to be clever with phrasing here, it's you have to be what you want to become. <laughs> and, and I've been thinking yeah. about that a lot lately. And I, it's like the decision, and we talked about it in the beginning here, is like every th- action you take is it's not about the sum, you know, the success part of it. It's not about what it looks like at the end. It's about every little step you take. If you want to imagine a brick wall, every day you decide to make a choice for anything that you provides meaning in your life. So if you choose to go to the gym today, that's a brick. If you choose to go to the gym tomorrow, there's another brick. And then you do that over months, days, and years, or days, months, and years. Then eventually you make a wall that then creates a foundation that what you're building upon that then you have, you can look back and be like, wow, wow, look at what I've done. Mm. Yeah. It's it's a fake it to make it thing. It's, yeah, it is kind of that. Which is idea. a cliche, and I don't really like it. But I don't like it either. It's not you're not really you're not faking anything. You're doing it. No, that's why you said, that's out. why you said be you have to be it before yeah. you become it. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I, like it's, it's almost like what do you call it? Deductive reasoning. Yeah. Is it deductive or inductive? It might be inductive reasoning. Deductive where, is like deducing it from facts, whereas inductive is like you're just in like inducing it. I think it's the other way around. I, that inducing I, is inducing a, that what you're doing yeah. is yeah, it's inducing. So what it is is you see a whole bunch of patterns mm-hmm. and those patterns there's a whole bunch of behaviors that are Yeah. And then you create a pattern out of it and that pattern is a rule. Yeah. Usually. There you go. It's the emergent So you're inducing Yeah life into that rule, into that, that law or whatever it is mm-hmm. you're doing. But in this case, it's you're inducing yourself with whatever it was that the pattern is of your own behavior. So if you continue to behave as, if you go to the gym a hundred times in a year, then that is one pattern and that pattern now, like yeah. now you are a person that goes to the gym. Yeah, It's not the other way around. It's not that you're a person that goes to the gym, so you're going to the gym. It's that you first go there and then you become that person by playing out the pattern. Yeah. You induce That's that reality into yourself. Yeah. And then it's like, cause it's like the example I'm thinking of is like when you talk to someone, so like, you know, in our cases, we're used to going to the gym now. Right. And then when you talk to someone who doesn't go or wishes they could go more, when you try to talk to them and be like, you got like, I catch myself saying, you just got to do it. Like you, you, you don't know it. Like you just got to do it for a week and you'll see the, the state shift or, you know, that's my new language I would say, but it's like, you have to just kind of commit to do it for a short amount of time. And then eventually it'll be like something triggers in your brain. And then you just start realizing, Oh wow, I do feel better. Like things are easier. I'm have better mood regulation or whatever. Like, even though it hurts <laughs> for just using the simple example of working out. Yeah. Hmm. The gym is always great for this. It's such a good. <laughs> it's such an easy example. Like, I, I, it's such a microcosm for life in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It, it. I learned a lot 
about my personal philosophy from going to the gym. Like I realized in mm-hmm. life that that it really, in order to go to grow in the gym, literally, you have to strain yourself. You yeah. really have to put yourself through the through the ringer, and to grow as a person, for your character to grow, you really have to train yourself. Mm-hmm. You have to. You can't just be becoming a moral person is definitely like you aren't just born a good person. You're not really born a bad person either. You're just kind of a like children just do things. You know what I mean? You're just there. You just exist. Kids are just little (laughs) balls of of jaw, and they're monsters. They just they run around. (laughs) They're monsters. Anything that comes to mind, they don't care, good or bad. They have no concept of. Yeah, go around. And they will just do it, and you'll love them for it, or you hate them for it. I mean, there's that. They'll isn't it like everything. the terrible twos or something like that? Is like the thing. Yeah, they just right because they can move around now. <laughs> <laughs> they can run. They can run around right. and pick things up and put it in their mouth, and you're like, no. Yep. And they say no. They know how to say no. <laughs> <laughs> and in the year, they'll know how to lie. Two years, I think. But anyway. Yeah. Um. What's you're not really born good or bad, but if you're in an environment that facilitates it, it can be really easy to think that you're good mm-hmm. because you haven't really had the opportunity to be bad, to be bad for one, because if everything's good and things are, you know, you're not tempted to go rob a bank and have plenty. Yeah. So in what way are you really good there? Mm-hmm. But then also, if you haven't had the opportunity to be in a situation where it is tempting to go rob that bank, yeah, then you've never been under that strain to grow as a moral person. That you real moral growth, just like physical growth in the gym, mm-hmm. requires that you are put to the test. Yeah. And maybe you've been in situations where you had the opportunity but it wasn't much of a temptation for you personally. Yeah. Right. So maybe you're in a loving relationship mm-hmm. and somebody, a third party comes in and is trying to flirt with you. Mm-hmm. And maybe you love that, your, your relationship. So it's not even a temptation. It's like, or you're not even attracted to that. It's more like a distraction that. than anything else. Yeah. It's just like, get, it's like an annoying fly. Yeah. Get the fuck here. <laughs> like, <laughs> now you may have made the right choice in that situation. But did you morally grow? Mm-hmm. If it wasn't hard for you, then in what sense was it, dude? Was it at least a, a were, How do you? It, I wouldn't even call it moral. It wouldn't really. Yeah. Virtuous. I wouldn't call it virtuous, right? Yeah. You wouldn't say that that person is doing something impressive. Because if it's easy, then it's not. It's like you've already you've passed that like by, threshold already. Like you're beyond. Yeah, like by that. definition, it's basically not. Yeah. So this is I. So, I want to bounce an idea off of you because this is really similar to what yeah. I've been thinking about. Is it's similar to the sense that like the gym, but in the mental arena, is like pain and like severe pain. Going back to the relationship stuff, like you yeah. lose, like you lose a relationship ends. And my metaphor for this is like your the receiver of pain as if you're a glass mannequin, both receiving and observing at the same time and you collapse inward on yourself. And even in that moment, you don't know how bad the damage is. 
until months or however long it takes you to process what happened and put yourself back together into a new form and kind of just understand what you went through. And for me, that's a metaphor is saying like, you need to go through pain to be able to find the deep work, to be able to find the flaws in your own life, like mentally speaking, because when everything is okay, you don't seek out those things, even though you should do that when things are okay, because then you have structures to fall back on. But in reality, most of us don't do that because we see comfort. Like it's just a natural state for human beings to do that. So I just wanted to yeah. see where you wanted, like if, where you could take that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me. So if this is, I, if this isn't becoming obvious at this point, seriously distrust easy environments. No, I agree. A hundred percent. Like there's no point. Like the world is easy. The world that the average first world United States citizen lives in, if you're middle class or above, let's just say yeah, that. They're, they're insulated and they're an illusion. Yes. The insulation is protects you in some sense against, actually in multiple senses, it literally does protect you against the terrible things. But also it protects you against the knowledge of it or mm -hmm. even having to address it in some sense. So let's say, for example, that you were traumatized. Mm -hmm. But now that and it bothers you, right, and it really affects you and it's holding you back from you becoming who you could be, that if you could make your peace with that thing, yeah, that you could make meaning out of it and use that meaning to move forward in your life and be a stronger more well-rounded, grounded, empathetic human being. And and your world at the same time is going really well, that it's just easy enough, that it's that lukewarm bath. <laughs> Not even lukewarm, just that warm bath. You know? It's like barely warm I enough, I never right? want to get out of this. Yeah. And you're just comfortable. If you're comfortable in that way... So much so that you can get by without ever addressing that trauma, then you are robbing yourself of becoming all that you could be if you would address it. Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree with that. And that's a shame. Yeah. <laughs> so so it, it's good to, I've always looked at my season, I call them periods of integration and disintegration. Okay. Where when I'm integrated, I'm really my whole self in some sense. I mm -hmm. I know who I am, where I'm going, what's happening. It's an ordered um, feeling. It's it, like you it's, have a compass, right? Like you kind of can see what your your north is. <laughs> not exactly. It's not really an nope. aiming. It's more, but that's part of it. It's a firmness. Okay. Like I know oh. where I stand. Yeah. And whatever happens next will happen next. And because I know who I am and where I stand, I know. So it's more of like the, what, where the ground I'm going you're on. as a result, right? Yeah, it, it's it's a, a knowledge and a a integration of myself, and I know, and those periods happen, and they're good, and I can usually get a lot done during mm -hmm. that time, right? And I feel great, and they're all awesome, but they don't last, and that's fine. They shouldn't last. Now the other period is a disintegrated 
this is usually, this is chaotic for me. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't know what I want. I lost sense of who I am. I feel spread out over too many things. A turmoil. Fractured almost. Usually followed with turmoil. Mm-hmm. Not always negative per se, but it's definitely not clear. It's so more of like a cl- it's can't. like a cloudy day, and you can't, or maybe a foggy. That's this. This is kind of the analogy I'm just thinking of. If I were it's trying like, to imagistic it, it's like the the jigsaw puzzle on the table is still scattered, mm-hmm. and there's all these pieces that I have, and I can use them, and I can address them, and whatever, but they're not all together. And there's a thousand different things that I want to do, but I don't know how to order them. Mm-hmm. And there's a thousand things that I think that I am, but I don't know which one which, to focus on. Right, which of these is me, and what mm-hmm. these a thought, and what is constant, what's reliable, and who am I? Yeah. And there's benefits and negatives to both. The integrated state is beneficial because I know where I'm going, and I'm I can really crush it, and I'm confident, and things are good. Yeah. The downside is that I'm not, that life is so good usually that I won't address the other problems because I don't need to, just like yeah. we described before. Because I don't need to. Things are going well enough. Why think about whatever. Yeah, why push yourself further or higher? Yeah. And maybe I'm even got, and usually I'll have momentum to keep going professionally or whatever. Right. I, if I become a millionaire, I'll still not be all that I could be if I got there without ever mm-hmm. integrating the other parts of myself. Like the, I will have reached a ceiling that is beneath me. Yeah. It's like the, and go ahead. And the other side, the, the disintegrated side is negative because of the obvious things. It's chaotic. Yeah. It's uncertain. It's not confident. It's confused, but the benefit is that it's usually really creative that I, because mm. I can kind of go all over, I can just do kind of whatever intellectually. Yeah. You're in a new state of being immediately. It's just like, I don't really know what's going on. So I'm just going to roll with all the punches. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to do all these crazy things. Yeah, and that, I've gotten a lot out of that too. <laughs> like, That's I've gotten interesting opportunities because I just say, I don't know if I want to do this or not, but I'm just going to do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, sometimes that's good, sometimes it's bad. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I've spread myself then using doing that one, but <laughs> oh, that's good. But it works out too. Like, and you get to reform yourself because in that chaotic period too, you because things are stressful, the old stressors boil back up to the surface. Yeah. And uh, now you get to address them. Now you've been made aware of them. That's good. It's almost like you need this, like, it's like you need this ebb and flow of growth and then crumbling and then rebirth and then growth again and then crumbling and rebirth. And you constantly are iterating on yourself. Because you're never going to, because there's going to be things that you once held, took for granted or whatever, be it relationships, assumptions you made, or just changing environment that you have to throw away, like legitimately. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, right, exactly. Your environment's going. 
So this, this is really evident in a lot of pop culture and myth and mm-hmm. story and all that. And there's a reason for that. And there's archetypes and there's all this union stuff going on. But one example is one of my absolute favorites that is, I think, genius is Ghost in the Shell for like 95, I think, that the, the original anime version, right? Yeah, the animated one that yeah. influenced Matrix and a whole, basically a whole. I didn't metric. know it influenced Matrix, but it makes a lot of sense stylistically. Oh, yeah. They probably like they were um, the green text comes straight from. Ghost yeah, in the Shell. Th- that's exactly why. That's like that was the through line that I just immediately imagined. <laughs> yeah, but in Ghost in the Shell, there's a handful of lines that really get to this. One is. Um, one that's become something I won't forget for a long time is you're they're having a conversation. So there's a um, the main character who is a basically a cyborg, part human, part machine in this futuristic world. She at one point says, when trying to explain to someone why and their team of experts, they have one very normal person who doesn't have any enhancement stuff at all. She says to him that they need him because to if everybody all had those enhancements, they would be all the same. That you'd over-specialize and you breed in weakness, is what she says. Wow. So that's one element. That's the ordered element. That's a really relevant quote. Order. <laughs> and then later in the film, she meets a AI, completely autonomous machine in and of itself. It's, it is a sentient, awake, conscious, mm-hmm. never had any humanity to life. And it tells her that what it wants to do is merge with her, merge their consciousnesses together. Because what it is is all things, but it lacks the basic limitations of life such as dying and reproducing. Mm-hmm. The most basic things that humans have, it can't have. It does not have. So it has everything but that. So in its lack of limitation, it necessitates that it has a limitation That's weird. and that it's, it's unlimited, a- <laughs> right? There are Not having a limit is a limitation. Right. It, not having a start. Paradoxically. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's paradoxically it's so that. weird. So it wants to merge with her, and she says to it, how do I know that I'll still be myself? And he tells her, why would you wish to? All things change in a dynamic environment. Your desire to remain yourself is what limits you. It's very Buddhist. Yeah, it is. It's... <laughs> But it's back to this idea of death and rebirth, mm-hmm. that who you are now stops you from being who you could become. And so back you have to, to let that And that die. ties perfectly into the self-doubt category, right? <laughs> right. Because you're hope. doubting. You have, to, you have to rely on a little bit of you have a leap of faith and hope mm-hmm. and in a pursuit of that meaningful new self that will bring you, give you the to move into the new you, to let go of who you were. Yeah. Damn. And the self-doubt comes, what if I won't become someone that I like? Or can I survive if I'm or will not people who like I am me? now? Or, or, right, will people like me? 
will I be as capable as I am? I know that... How would I say this? When I left the Marine Corps and I was... There was definitely a period when I was very intellectual. Mm -hmm. I was afraid to become more in touch with my emotional side. (laughs) Because I was afraid that these two things were antithetical. Right, to become they, they more couldn't... emotional was become less logical. Yes, but that, and I had to let go of that mm-hmm. for one, for my own mental health. But two, what I found was that they aren't antithetical. But I wouldn't have known that until I took that leap. Yeah, that you can be both aware of your own emotion and also a rational human being. Yes, like it's weird for me because. I think I, I lived that way probably all the way through high school and probably some of my early college experiences, you know, and, and for me, I've always resonated with the scientist, right? So I kind of just viewed yeah. viewed myself as like, oh, yeah, you got to be as machine-like and stoic in the, the, the negative sense of stoic, not the newer version of stoic. Um, yeah. And, and so I, I kind of just, you know, desynchronized or disintegrated that emotional side of my being. You know, I just, I like threw it down a well and locked it down deep, basically. Right. And it took a long time for, for myself to be able to, you know, get to know that side of me and then be able to have that exist in tandem with, with the analytical side of me, which I would still probably lean more on that side of the spectrum, but be because of doing like even th- this, like this podcast helps me understand the parts of myself that I believe are I'm lacking in, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's, you know, that's kind of just my whole ethos in some ways is yeah. this exploration of the self in real time. <laughs> yeah. I, that's a huge part of who I am. Just what I'd like to do. I try to do now as or as frequently as I can mm-hmm. is that when I recognize something that I'm lacking, I try to put myself in an environment that demands that inadequacy. Yeah. So that I am forced to grow as a result. I like now it. I, it's harder to do now that Right. I'm in school. Of course. <laughs> the more it the more limitations. structured my life becomes, the less flexible it is mm-hmm. in allowing these big shifts. But it's part of why I like moving. Yeah, I think why moving I is enjoyed important. moving to the Marine Corps, which involved multiple moves, and then moving back home, and then moving here to Michigan. And I'm comfortable with that because I recognize that each time I get to grow Yeah. as a result. It was interesting. I'm in a new environment. I was thinking about like that in terms of relationships in, in recently, like, cause like people that we know and stuff like that are getting married and whatnot. And I was like, Oh, you know what? That's interesting. It's like we as human beings need delineation when life events occur, right? Like you graduate college, you needed, you have a life event in the sense that you get your first real time job. Like, you know, at the very least, you get a title change or something, right? And you get yeah. a piece of paper. There's a celebration, things like that. There's delineation from who you were before to who you are now. And and then it's like for life events, like having a relationship, like getting married, you get a house together, or at least you should, 
in, in now that like I'm thinking about this like meaning thing of it and like integration, um, because if you, if it doesn't change enough, it's easy then to stagnate because it's like well it's not we've already been doing this so it doesn't really nothing's really different, kind of thing. Right. And and I think if you try to, obviously you don't need to always do that for big life events, but it's like, if you do that, you know, every six months or something, you can kind of force changes to happen without having them to go into, you know, nuclear reaction mode and things disintegrate. (laughs) I'm not saying you have to like move, move every six months, but try to find something like an aspect of your life that you can, you know, control meltdown (laughs) and then, and then try to reintegrate it and spur new growth. It's almost like when you see every spring where they burn the forests, if you live in an area where they do controlled burns, it's just, yeah, the idea is a controlled thing. Yeah. And that, and that actually allows the, the force itself to flourish Mm -hmm. in the long run. Right. Yeah. What's cool too is like, Imagine if you could have all those things turned on mm-hmm. that you've gone to all these different environments and changed as a result. And now there's all these integrated elements mm-hmm. yourself and all those tools that you have here in toolbox makes you robust Yeah. so that if you come across a situation that's new, maybe you've already got the tool for it. Yeah. Maybe when you've been forced into a new shifting environment, you're prepared because you've been doing these things over and over again to grow yourself just for this occasion. It, it's almost like the idea of atonement, or at one mint, not a, well, it's atonement, but it depends on how you want to articulate it. The yeah, bo- the I bo- see that. The Buddhist would call it at one mint, you know, it's being yeah, at yeah. one in the moment. <laughs> I've thought about this a lot. I've seen with a lot of people that have lingering negative emotional events that mm-hmm. they don't really talk about. That a lot of these things look like to me that what people want is reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Is that they're trying to reconcile perhaps something they did in their past with who they are now or who they wanted. I've seen that before. The the if when I've given people compliments, I can remember someone in particular that I gave a compliment and when I said it, she kind of brushed it off and had a particular look about her, and she didn't really accept the compliment. And I can, re- I can still remember the look, and it's the, if only you knew what I knew about myself, you wouldn't have said that. Huh. And it's these people that know these things about they had been, or rather mm-hmm. what they had done, and now they can't even let themselves be happy in a relationship because they're terrified that if that other person knew what they knew, then they wouldn't love them. Damn. So you have to go back and face those things yeah. and address them and reconcile and make meaning on and work it's like, to yeah. integrate that part to yourself and to forgive yourself for it and to reconcile it with who you are. you're trying to move yeah 
And with that said, I have work in the morning. Yeah, you do. So I think I need to go. <laughs> Dude, as always, Joe, never disappoints. <laughs> yeah, I try. Boom. I want to take a quick second and talk about how you can support our show. I believe this is the most honest way that I can connect with you, the listener, and put it in front of everyone. You can support our show for as little as 99 cents a month. We release four podcasts a month, all at an average length of about an hour. That means you are supporting us at just 25 cents an hour. That's that's cheaper than the dollar menu. I think it's safe to say that we provide more value than that. And if you learn anything from our content, please consider becoming a supporter today with the link in the description of any episode or on the website at feedingcuriosity.net. And with that, thanks for listening and please enjoy the show. You just listened to an episode of Feeding Curiosity. Thank you all for listening and tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a like, subscribe, go check out the website over at feedingcuriosity.net and all the other things that we're doing there. And once again, thank you all for tuning in and we will see you in the next episode.